Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today I'm going to offer you a quiz on animals who made history. I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> Ready? Animals who made history. Yes. Yep. Who was the hero carrier pigeon that saved hundreds of U.S. troops during World War I? Oh. Oh, something Ami? Yes. Uh, Cher Ami. Cher. Like C-H-E-R? Yeah. A-M-I. A-M-I. Yep. As you know, during World War I, pigeons worked as messengers. Cher Ami was one of the 600 pigeons sent to France to assist with communication on the battlefield. This is from the Smithsonian History Explorer. He, Cher Ami, delivered 12 important messages within the American sector of Verdun. On his last mission, October 4th, 1918, he was shot through the breast and leg by enemy fire, but still managed to return to his loft with the message capsule dangling from his wounded leg. The message Cherami carried was from Major Charles S. Whittlesey's Lost Battalion of the 7070 Infantry Division that had been isolated from other American forces. The message brought about relief of the 194 battalion survivors, and they were safe behind American lines shortly after the message was received. Peter, what dog was the most famous dog in Hollywood? He starred in movies throughout the 1940s and also in a 19-season-long TV show, which aired from 1954 to 1973. Mm. Uh, Rin-tin-tin or Lassie? Lassie. <laughs> the first animal actor to play Lassie, his name was Pal. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. In 1960... Jane Goodall dedicated her groundbreaking research papers about emotion and communication in animals to whom? Oh, what is the name of her? My favorite monkey. Uh, Very good. <laughs> let's see. You're on a roll. On a roll. Um, what is the name of? Can't remember. Where's your multiple choice? No, that's not happening. <laughs> John Whitebeard, Gary Grayhead. Or David Greybeard? <laughs> well, I think Greybeard is whoever. I didn't know he had a first name like that. Greybeard. David Greybeard was the chimpanzee who showed the world how intelligent these animals are. Yeah. Jane was in Gombe National Park in Tanzania studying animals, and David Greybeard was the first to accept Goodall, allowing her to watch and observe him. And then other members of the chimpanzee community allowed her to watch them as well. But it was David Greybeard whom Goodall first witnessed making and using tools. Goodall also saw him using a grass stalk to extract termites from a termite hill. And also he was observed constructing fishing tools by stripping the leaves of twigs. Yeah, she's brave. Yeah. And it's interesting, I mean, 1960 or whenever, that must have seemed groundbreaking to have these revelations of tool making, right? And now it's like, oh, whatever. Younger folks, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course they do that. Yeah. But at the time. Peter, what was the name of the documentary that was released in 2013, which essentially ended SeaWorld's orca breeding program? Uh, Blackfish. 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 
And in this film, Blackfish, the tragic story of one of SeaWorld's performing whales named Tilikum was told. The story of Tilikum sparked a movement against SeaWorld and, of course, the whole ethical discussion surrounding keeping orca whales in captivity. SeaWorld's attendance quickly dropped by one million visitors. And according to Conversation.com, in 2014, the company announced an 84% fall in income and saw its share price drop by 33%. SeaWorld had also announced it was ending its orca breeding program. Tilikum died in 2017 at the age of 35, and in the wild, life expectancy for orcas is 50 to 80 years. Who is the Internet's most popular cat? Oh, the okay, let's see. I would say... Here's your hint. Okay, not Grumpy Cat. Yes. Oh, okay. Now make the face. <laughs> <laughs> now make the face. Okay. Thanks a lot. Do you know what Grumpy Cat's real name was? No, I don't know this, but I, just go ahead. You better go forward. Okay. Tartar sauce. Oh, that, maybe that's why the the, uh, the face. Yeah. Too, mu- too much of that. Yes, Grumpy Cat was an internet celebrity cat and known for his grumpy facial appearance. She died at the age of seven, I think, from complications of a urinary tract infection. Not too bad. Peter, who was the first war dog who served in World War One? Hmm, I should know this. You should know this. I should know this. Uh, what is his little name? This little cute little terrier. Uh, yeah, Pitbull. Is Pitbull terrier? Yeah. Um, Stubby. Good. Well, yeah. Sergeant Stubby. Yeah. Okay. I thought it might have gotten my wars confused. No. But okay. Very good. Yeah. Reportedly, and according to Wikipedia, Stubby saved his regiment from surprise mustard gas attacks found and comforted the wounded and allegedly once caught a german soldier by the seat of his pants holding him there until american soldiers found him mm. good you know who was the most famous great ape who knew sign language oh i know that it's coco good coco coco ko ko Right. right. Coco's handler was named Francine Patterson, and Coco proved to a lot of people that apes are highly intelligent creatures and are in many ways can be very similar to humans. Who is the first dog in space? Okay. Uh, Laika? I think it's Le- Laika. Le- okay. I, I I don't know. L-A-I-K-A? Okay. From... Uh- the Russian. Yeah, you think Lake had a fun trip into space and came back home to to be back with his loving family? <laughs> right, I know. Yeah. Here's a fun one. Who would you say is the most famous animated animal ever? Hmm. Okay, well now, anime, does that include like internet celebrities or like car- TV cartoons? How about let's or, stick to movies? Let's stick to cartoon and movies. Cartoon, okay. I'm going to say ever. Uh, that is going to be Nemo? Nemo? Yes. No? Okay. Finding Nemo, you know, the little clownfish? I'm, I'm giving you the grumpy <laughs> face again. <I> Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Uh, what species? <laughs> A mouse. Mickey Mouse? Yes. That sounded just like Mickey. <laughs> Wouldn't you say Mickey Mouse is the most famous animated animal ever? Well, I didn't know if he still reigned supreme. 
Yeah, that's a good point. You know, maybe somebody else okay. came along. But so I'm sorry to dismiss your Nemo okay. answer. Okay. That wasn't as ridiculous as <laughs> Grumpy Cat thought. I'm used to it. Who would you say is the most famous puppet oh, ever? Or okay. let's say ever. You and I growing up. Fa- most famous puppet. Well, there's no puppets anymore, right? Puppet. Are there puppets? Okay. okay. I'm going to say Big Bird. Oh, that's a good guess. Is a Muppet a puppet? Is that what you, or am I uh, stretching the boundaries of a... I think you're... Okay, puppet. Okay. Animal puppet. Mm. Ribbit. <laughs> Kermit the Frog. Yes. So that he's a Muppet too. But he's a puppet. <laughs> Wasn't he a puppet Muppet? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Muppy. I think Smush, Muppy, Muppy. <laughs> I think it's there's a difference between Muppets and puppets. I don't think you know what you're talking about. All right. Who became famous for being the first successful case of the reproductive cloning of a mammal? Yeah, Dolly. Dolly the sheep. Dolly the sheep was born on July 5th, 1996 by a technique called somatic cell nuclear transfer in which the cell... Nucleus from an adult cell is transferred into an unfertilized egg, Mm -hmm. and then once inside the egg, the somatic nucleus is reprogrammed by egg cytoplasmic factors to become a fertilized egg, something like that. (laughs) Um, She was cloned by associates of the Roslyn Institute in Scotland. Dolly died of a lung disease at age six. I know, a short life as far as these things go. Yeah. But um, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but uh, supposed to have been named after Dolly Parton. Oh, I didn't know that. Due to her uh, anatomy that oh. the sheep had and the Dolly Parton had. Okay. Some, that's all. No, I, I all understand. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, st- I think the listeners okay. understand. All right. all right. Okay, interesting. Okay, finally, I will just mention two more animals that we should never forget. First, 17-year-old gorilla named Harambi, who was imprisoned at the Cincinnati Zoo. Harambi was shot and killed when a four-year-old boy fell into his enclosure. Many were outraged that zoo officials decided to kill Harambi instead of using a tranquilizer. Also, many blamed the parents of this boy of neglectful parenting. In addition, many said and say gorillas are wild animals and should not be living in a cage in the first place. Yeah, a lot of blame to go around. Yep, you bet. Another great non-human animal we should never forget is Cecil the lion. Some of our younger listeners might not remember the story about Cecil. Cecil was Africa's most famous and beloved lion in Zimbabwe. He was adored by the locals and the tourists. Cecil was always just hanging out, willing and wanting to welcome anyone who wanted to say hello to him. He was renowned as a gentle giant. Also, Cecil was being studied and tracked by University of Oxford as part of a long-term study in order to benefit conservation and benefit other animals like Cecil. Then, one day in 2015, an evil American trophy hunter, murderer, called Walter Palmer, intentionally lured beautiful Cecil from his peaceful existence, from his protected sanctuary, so he can be shot with a bow and arrow. Cecil didn't die immediately. He was badly wounded. He stumbled off. He was bleeding and suffering for about 40 hours until this person, Walter Palmer, finally captured and finished Cecil off with a bullet. Then he 
skin sea soul, so the skin could be salted and stuffed by a taxidermist. And, and then Palmer cut off Cecil's head so he could mount it as a trophy on his wall. And then he left Cecil's body there to rot. This brutal killing of Cecil sparked global outrage. And of course, it also stoked a debate around hunting and more specifically trophy hunting of endangered species. Okay, Peter, just a few of many animals who made history. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Don't go away. We'll be right back. a really interesting story that brings us to the early days of the animal welfare movement in the United States, and it involves a determined Boston socialite, ladies' fashion, and birds. I want to welcome Kate Kelly, who is going to share this fascinating piece of American history with us. Kate is an author and historian, and her website is americacomesalive.com. Welcome back to the program, Kate. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you. Kate, this is so fascinating for many reasons, but especially because it involves a woman in the 1800s and because it represents such a revolutionary idea, that being protecting animals. Kate, where does the story begin? Well, the story begins, in terms of the conservation part of the story, we, we pick up with Harriet Lawrence Hemingway. And she became active in about the 1890s because she became concerned about a fashion trend that had become popular in the 1870s. The fashion trend that bothered her was the fact that women had started wearing big brimmed hats with lots of decoration. The decorations were ribbons, they were feathers, they were all sorts of different things. And sometimes they were actually full bird bodies. Mm. Birds had been killed and stuffed and placed on the hat. Now, this trend seemed to be, it started in Europe and spread over to the United States. The bird killing in order to get these feathers was in Europe and then again gravitated over to the United States. And Certainly the Florida Everglades was an area that was heavily hit because they could get snowy egrets down in that area, flamingos, all sorts of birds. And, and the, the hunters were just going in and decimating the population. They didn't take a few birds. They would kill massive numbers of birds, including mothers sitting on eggs or mothers taking care of their young, and they would take out that parent, and there was nobody there to... to care for the baby birds after that, so that, of course, the birds didn't make it. So it was really growing to the point that there were fewer and fewer. I mean, the bird population was was seriously and noticeably down. But when you look at the economy of the fad, you, you understand what was happening. In the late 1890s, the feathers were selling for $20 per ounce, and that's an ounce of feathers. That, that, that's quite a few flowers feathers because an ounce of feathers is a very light thing, but you figure $20 at that time would have been worth $510 in money today. So this kind of hunting was actually more profitable than going out and digging for gold. So so it was certainly something that was, was very, very prominent and prevalent at the time. At that time, Kate, was there any similar interest in the welfare of any other animals? 
Not at that time, because think about the fact that in the 1870s, we had no motorized vehicles. People were still using um, horses and, and mules for pulling any sort of conveyance. So it was one of those things that animals were very much a part of people's worlds, but they weren't protected. You know, the cats were rodent catchers. The dogs might have been security dogs. I think people also did like having dogs around. Nobody really cared for them like pets in the way that we do today. So no one was watching out for animals at that time. So back to Hemingway. She was a real visionary, wasn't she? Yes, she was. And the thing that was so admirable about her was the part of the world that she attacked. You know, she was not going to be the woman to go down and halt the hunters, but what she could do was begin to change the fashion trend. So what she did was connected with one of her cousins in Boston, and the women started having teas. And at these teas, they would invite different groups of women, and they would present the case that by the women wearing these plumed hats, they were actually causing the destruction of vast numbers of birds in in various parts of the country. Now, some of the women were offended. They thought, this is not appropriate, and I'm going to wear what I'm going to wear, and they would walk out of the tea almost before they arrived. But other women stayed and listened, and eventually Hemingway was able to watch and see a change in the trend in this this type of fashion. And of course, once the trend becomes less popular, you see a, a drop in the market, which is what they needed to do in order to match what was going on in Florida, which was that there were environmentalists in the Everglades who were trying to put an end to this type of of hunting. But the problem was that if you stationed a warden in a particular area, the warden was also very likely to be killed because, again, the value of those birds and the feathers was just so great to the hunters. Wow. Was there any indication that she had a particular fondness for birds? Did she like birds? Oh, that's a really good question don't know why Hemingway particularly beamed in on the birds. She and her husband were both environmentally interested, and eventually she not only started the Massachusetts Audubon Society chapter, but she also stayed with the organization long enough to convince them that buying land to set aside as a preserve was an activity that was important for nonprofit organizations. So what was Hemingway able to do to take action and get a male-dominated society to care about this cause? You know, I think she just pushed for the cause. Now, I, I have written about another woman who basically did work through her husband to establish the legal work and to establish a board of directors. So women at that time did not have a lot of ability to to mastermind things. And so when she went after the theory that the Audubon Society should be purchasing land, she did work through her husband, who was an environmentalist. And I think, I, I don't think the women particularly fought that at the time, simply because that was just how they could get something done. And so they accepted what the terms were and worked through the men. And, and, I, and I would say that her husband was absolutely instrumental but she was telling him what she wanted him to do. So you mentioned Hemingway's work led to the establishment of the Massachusetts Audubon Society, which was the first one in the United States, right? It was the first chapter in the United States. George Bird, Bird Grinnell had established the national chapter about 10 years before she started the, uh, the, the national organization, before 
uh, Hemingway started the local chapter. So there was legislation the society was able to pass to protect birds. Yes, and we were very fortunate that Teddy Roosevelt was president at that time, because when he became aware of what was happening, he was very conservation-minded, although he was also a hunter, but he established in 1903 that there would be a land preserve down in the Everglades, and that's when Pelican Island was established. Now, it was originally established simply as a bird preserve, but then after that it became an animal refuge, and they do date that one to being the first property that was set aside by the federal government for first saving the birds, but then later saving the animals. So we're lucky that we had someone in in mind who was willing to follow that path that was going on, because the first legislation to protect birds was 1901. So, So he was pretty quickly following the lead that he was observing going on around him. Now, Hemingway did convince the Massachusetts Audubon Society to purchase land in Massachusetts to become a preserve, and this is in 1922. Why is that so important? Because she basically set a pattern that we still follow today. It's often the nonprofit organization that goes out and acquires the land and then decides how it's going to be managed. Organizations will buy land for animal and, and bird preservation, and then they decide what parts are absolutely vital in order to save and manage for that conservation purpose. Kate Kelly, this was so interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. now is Karen Menzer, founder and director of Animal Kind International, a very special U.S.-based organization that partners with local groups in a host of African countries to help all kinds of needy animals and to provide resources to those people who are doing the work. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to finally connect like this. We've been uh, following you and learning all about you. So why don't you just start by telling us What is Animal Kind International, please? Animal Kind International is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that raises money and raises visibility for animal welfare organizations, mainly in Africa and a few others in Latin America and the Caribbean and one in Armenia. We fund our partner organizations, and those are 11 organizations that we know personally. And... We raise visibility for them. We track the use of donor funds. We provide regular funding for our partner organizations so that they know that they have funds to use for their operations. These are mainly in um, Uganda, for example, Namibia, Ghana, um, Liberia, Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan. These are places that don't have much of a funding donor base for to raise money from so we we look to people who love animals in the u.s and in europe who might not know about these organizations and might want to help so we're a safe place for giving and we provide information we track donor funds how do you uh figure out or determine or develop your relationships with your partner organizations and i i know you personally have spent a, a lot of time on the continent yeah, um, 
Well, I guess it, it all it started because I just I was born with a love for dogs and later for cats. And I started volunteering at an animal shelter when I was 15. And, and then I, I started working in conservation when, um, back in 1991 in Latin America and South America and Central America and the Caribbean. So I, w- I would travel there, see animals in bad shape, living on the streets. In the U.S., we put them in shelters, you know, in Central and South America and the Caribbean. They were out on the streets, so you couldn't avoid seeing them. And I would try to help them. And I'd look for people who were helping. And this is 1991, 92, 93, 4, 5, 6. There was no Facebook. There were no websites. So I would go to vets' offices and pet shops and ask friends if anybody was helping. And I helped a few people and a few, I helped them help animals. Yeah. And then in 1997, I moved to Africa, to Uganda, and, and was living in Uganda for five years, so I had time to really volunteer. At that time, it was Uganda. Society for the Protection and Care of Animals was the only animal welfare organization in Uganda, and it had just started. Um, so I I volunteered there. I was Katya and I. She's a founder. She had spay-neuter clinics in Entebbe where she lived, and I would have spay-neuter clinics at my house where I lived. And then we moved to Botswana, Ghana, Namibia, and Jamaica, and lived there like about 10 years, and in various countries. Um, and I volunteered for animal welfare organizations in all of them. So those became our first partner organizations when I moved back to the U.S. I had relationships with them, knew them well, knew them face-to-face, knew them from working with them in person, and started raising money for those organizations, a handful of organizations that then grew to what we now have are 11 partner organizations. I, I still work in conservation and mostly in Africa, so I still travel there. I still meet animal welfare advocates and visit organizations and um then every place i go i try to meet whoever is working in animal rescue in the country yeah so it may be uh too tough to generalize but people would want to know what sort of animals are we talking about mostly our organizations mostly work with dogs and cats the part our partner organizations but we have one that works with donkeys and one that works with horses. We're talking about domesticated animals, not wildlife. And so what are the issues that these animals are facing? Are there lots of uh, sort of unhomed or feral dogs and cats in the communities? And Yeah, you know, um, people, for the most part, and again, generalizing, are raised to be afraid of dogs and for good reason because rabies is still an issue Mm. in Africa and a lot of Latin American countries. And so they're afraid of dogs. They've never seen dogs uh, treated kindly. Cats, they've seen people throw rocks at, chase away. They're not part of the family. So for the most part, kids grow up not having these feelings for animals that a lot of the rest of us might grow up with, you know, our parents loved animals or our friends all loved animals. 
It just is normal for us. But when you're taught not to and you're taught to be afraid of them, you know, that's then you grow up treating them cruelly too. So mostly it's Uganda SPCA and um, Savonos Animal and Democratic Republic of Congo and Liberia. We get a lot of calls about cruelty cases. Mm. Um, people throwing rocks, people beating dogs, people seeing a stray dog with mange, thinking that there's the dog has rabies because yeah. it lost its hair. Yeah. So mm. a lot of misunderstandings about dogs and cats. Yeah. While we're at it, I just want to um, uh, tell listeners of the website, which we were just chatting about before, animal-kinds.org. Is that, is that right? And um, That's right. And when you go there, and I encourage you to, to go there, you'll see just a wealth of uh, detailed information, lots of wonderful pictures, lots of great heartwarming stories. You get a feeling of the challenges. Um, you do see some quite impoverished uh, uh, situations and you see some happy smiles of of the folks who are working there and so and they love their animals just like just like mm-hmm. anyone and it's just a delight to see so it's a really effective wonderful website there are many ways to uh, support the organization and to donate there are nice little incentives you uh, provide if someone wants to uh, do this and and I'll just emphasize that if you're looking for uh, an effective way to donate even relatively modest sums that you know is going to be used 100% effectively, you know, with like little or no overhead and there are no salaries. It just is all going right to where it's needed. This is, uh, you got to look at Animal Kind International. Thank you. Yeah, it's true. Okay. So we talked about having you feature a couple of uh, countries or or relationships that you have. So who do you want to start with? I think I'd start with Uganda Society for the Protection and Care of Animals, because that's where I started. Um, USPCA, they have a shelter now where they have about 300 animals, even over that number. They helped in 2022, 1102 animals that they cared for at their shelter. And they've been a partner organization with us since 2007, since our start. And as a partner, we fund their priority needs. We don't tell them how to use our money. We say they know, our partners know best how to use our money. Unlike a lot of grant-making organizations where you would submit a proposal and for a project and your project might get funded. Our partners know they're going to get money from us as long as they fulfill our requirements of accountability, transparency, being communicative with us. They'll get regular funding from us, which is so important because as I said, there's just not much of a funding donor base in these countries. So so they use our funds, our donors, donations for their operations. We cover um, shelter rent. They're paying rent for their shelter in Kampala. Shelter salaries, they have 12 people working there, mm-hmm. including a vet. We cover transport. They go rescue animals. They do pre-post, pre and post adoption visits. 
They need money for shelter utilities, water, electricity. So they can use our funds for, it's very hard to get funding for those kinds of things. They can use our funds for those requirements, the the requirements that keep the organization running. And then in the last, oh, five, six years ago, we started helping them raise money to buy their own land so that they won't have to pay shelter rent anymore. And they bought this beautiful piece of land over two acres and we started doing construction on the site, started moving some animals over, mostly about like a 35 to 37 dogs. Uh-huh. And and it's just it's such a joy to see them because their shelter in Kampala is very crowded now. It's in the middle of the city, and it's just not that welcoming. And this place is just so beautiful and open, open space. The dogs can move around, have freedom, play be quiet, find quiet places. But now we have to fulfill some environmental requirements. So things were to stand still. We're we're waiting to find out if how and what we need to do to comply with National Environmental Management Authority requirements. And once we do, we can resume construction of the facilities, the more kennels, uh, humane education center, an office reception, small vet clinic, and get all the animals moved over there and stop paying rent. So Uganda SPCA is the really the main animal shelter in Uganda and works Kampala and Tebi and all around the country. We're going to take a break shortly, but tell me a little bit about humane education in Uganda. How does that happen? It mostly happens now. It's in humane education. There's two pieces to it. Okay. There's community education. So when they go to um, communities to hold spay-neuter clinics, vaccination clinics, they'll combine that with humane education for all community members. They might, when they get called for an animal, for a rescue, if some of the community members have been afraid of a dog that's roaming the area or they are threatening to poison dogs in the area and the Uganda SPCA goes to the community, they will do some humane education, but then there's more formal with school kids. Yeah. And those that sometimes in the school and sometimes at the USPCA shelter. We are speaking with Karen Menzer from Animal Kind International. Uh, Stick around after the break. We are going to learn more about uh, their activities in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Is that right? Yes. You're listening to Animals Today. speaking with Karen Menzer with Animal Kind International. Hey, Karen. Okay, so next country and next set of activities. Please uh, tell us what you got going on. Savono Sanimo in Democratic Republic of Congo. They're a bit different than the USPCA because Uganda SPCA is in Kampala, big city. A lot of people visit Uganda. A lot of people visit the USPCA. In Bukavu, Bukavu, Democratic Republic of Congo, Eastern Congo, very few people visit. It's fairly insecure. There's a lot of conflict. They're prone to disasters, mudslides, landslides, flooding, um, earthquakes. But 
Savonos Animo owns their own land for their shelter. That's a great step. Um, it was started by Patern, who is amazing. Again, Bukavu in Democratic Republic of Congo, very isolated area. And yet Patern started what we think is the only shelter in all Democratic Republic of Congo, this huge country. Patern is, is that an individual? I am not sure. Yeah, Patern Bushunju. Okay. An individual. All right, carry on. He was the founder of Savonos Animo. And he started by rescuing a puppy from some kids. Yeah. That grew to a few puppies. Um, then he became an environmental engineer along the way. And he decided that his love of dogs overrode his love of engineering. So he wanted to do more. He was collecting more dogs. Met somebody on Facebook, who, somebody from Italy, who decided he, they wanted to help him. They helped raise money. Patern was able to buy this piece of property and start a shelter. Sadly, this man died a few years ago. And meanwhile, Savonos Animo had a hundred, more than a hundred dogs and cats at their shelter. They had some donors, mostly from Italy and France. And then COVID struck, the econ economy became uncertain globally. His dogs and cats were hungry. Savonos Animo became a partner organization of ours. Yeah. I won't go into, it might take a while to go into. So they became our partner organization during this about a year and a half ago. And their dogs were hungry. Their cats were hungry. They were starving at the shelter, basically. And they're not going around collecting animals from the streets. So they're taking in dogs and cats that are really in need and can't be on the streets. So they had over 100 animals to feed. And some days they could only feed them rice. They became our partner organization. And we started a pet food fund for them. So now, thanks to our donors, these dogs and cats will never have to go hungry. Yeah. As a partner, Patern, Savonis Animal can use our funds for their priority needs. And of course, that's animal feed. So now, most recently, they their fence, the perimeter fence around the shelter blew over in a heavy winds. And that meant the dogs couldn't get out of the kennels every day. Normally, they'd have free run of the shelter grounds. Uh, people could just come right into the shelter grounds, and they could steal things. They could harm the dogs and cats. So we felt, okay, this is the most important thing. We're going to build a wall. So we started repairing this fence with the wall. And we're still raising funds for that because there's still fence all along the back that's prone to landslides and mudslides and flooding. Yeah. And... Other reason this is so important is that Patern, Savonos Animo, every year funds or hosts the Animal Friendly Kids Camp, he calls it. Right. And last year, there were 250 kids at this camp for wow. two months. Wow. It's amazing. And they get lunch every day, sometimes just rice like the dogs. And... They do things with the dogs and cats at the shelter. It's basically it builds a bond between kids and animals that isn't built in any other way in in Congo because they don't have any role models. Yes. So they do they do shelter chores. They learn how to pet dogs. They learn how to pet cats. They learn how to approach dogs, how to feed and then give water to them. And then they play soccer. So it's, it's a great way for these kids to spend a couple of months during their school break. That's great. 
So we wanted to get this wall built because it just was unsafe, unsafe for the dogs, cats, and staff, and it would be unsafe for the kids during Animal Friendly Kids Camp, which is another thing we tried to raise funds for. Right. And the money, your money goes a long way, doesn't it? You don't need huge funds to build a... No, no. I mean, yeah, and one of the good examples is our Have a Heart Namibia Emergency Fund, where we can fund about 50 emergency fund cases for about $3,000, which might be one emergency yeah. fund case in the right. U.S. Right, right. Patern is an amazing person. And I just want to be clear that, like, there's others... There are other people who are out there who drew up in the same conditions, situation, and having no models in their lives for caring about animals. And yet, like Patern, not to diminish anything he's done, but like Patern, they're also doing things. They felt that there was something wrong about the way they learned to treat animals, something in their hearts that said this is not right. There's Alex at Uganda SPCA and Jackie, and there's David with BAM Animal Clinics Uganda. And something said to them, this just isn't right. So they did something about it. So it just turns one example, but there are many, and luckily we've found some of these, and, and we want to support them. Well, we're glad you found them. These are some of our favorite, I'll speak for Lori and myself, some of our favorite people in the world are just like you're describing there. So that's really great. Mm. So do you have one more uh, little thing you wanted to mention and then your contact information so people can uh, find you and support you? Yeah, I wanted to mention our newest partner organization because they're so different and so interesting to me. Uh, The Six Freedoms Ghana. They work on horse rescue. And I'm a traditional animal rescue sheltering person. I've been doing this for decades. But Ula, the founder, just comes from a different place. She's an artist and she's a photographer. And she combines dance, painting, photography, music, plays with the horse community, which is horse owners and horse caretakers in Ghana, vets and vet students in Ghana, and brings them all together under this one umbrella to help horses, which there are so many abandoned horses in Ghana and so many mistreated horses and so many poorly treated horses because of misinformation. And there's so much work to be done. And the way she's doing it is just such a smart, different, really, I think it's unique way of approaching animal rescue and welfare. So I just wanted to mention them, our only animal partner organization that works on horses. That's great. Okay, so Animal Kind International, how do people find you? They can find us through our website, animal-kind.org. I'm happy to get any emails and respond to them at karen at animal-kind.org. You can find that on the website, too. Well, Karen, it's been a delight getting to know you and uh, learning about you, and we're happy to share this uh, with all of our uh, contacts also. And we wish you, um, I have a feeling we'll be speaking more. So uh, we wish you I'd be happy to. Okay. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals.